That's Hebrews chapter 1. And as we prepare now to hear from God's word, would you pray with me? Lord, you've told us that just as the rain and the snow will accomplish the purpose for which you've sent it, so also will your word accomplish what you have purposed. Lord, would you accomplish your purpose in us now as we hear from you? It's amazing that you would speak to us, that God would speak to us. Help us now not to lose the wonder of that. Lord, would you guide our understanding now by your spirit? Help us to see and to believe. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is the book of Hebrews in chapter 1. I want to read here the entirety of this uh, chapter. It's only 13 verses, so it's not as long as it may sound. Uh, but we'll start here in Hebrews chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I've begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And... You, Lord, laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They'll all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You'll roll them up like a garment. They'll be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? This is God's word. 
Now, here we go. Let's just dive right in here. As we swim or try to swim here in the pool of what God is saying to us here, and we're trying to listen well to what the author is saying and the way he is saying these things, I want to ask, just for the sake of structure, three questions of this first chapter of Hebrews. The three questions are these. First, what is he saying? Second, why is he saying it? And third, how do we engage with it? What is he saying? Why is he saying it? And how do we engage with it? So let's go for this first question. What here is the author saying? Even if you have never heard of or read Hebrew, the book of Hebrews, before in your entire life, and this is the very first time you're hearing this first chapter, you can probably still see in this first chapter the broad themes of what the author's talking about. He says a lot about angels. That's why we sang that Christmas song just a bit ago. He's talking a lot about angels here. Verse 4, 5, 6, Seven, keep going. I don't need to point them all out. He carries some of that into chapter two uh, a bit. And he's not just talking about angels by themselves. The author here is addressing angels specifically in comparison to Jesus. So you can see it many places, but it begins in verse four. If you look there, having become, he's now talking about Jesus here, having become as much superior to angels. Some translations there, instead of the word superior, use the word as much greater than the angels or as as much better than the angels. If you've got your own Bible, or even I guess if you've got a pew Bible, this is fine. Circle that word if you're the kind that writes in your Bible superior or greater or better. Because that is going to be a main theme, perhaps the main theme in Hebrews, that Jesus is better. So here he's better than the angels, but the author will unfold later that Jesus is a better hope under a better covenant of promises. He's a better priest with a better resurrection and better sacrifices. So we'll get to those as we come to them, but if someone asks you the question, which I don't know who asks these sorts of things, but if they do, if someone asks you the question, what is the book of Hebrews about? It's a good answer to just say, Jesus is better. That's what Hebrews is about. So in the margin of my Bible, I have a little, uh, every time this pops up, a little greater than symbol. I know, math. That's all I remember about my early math classes, you know, the little greater than symbol. There's greater than and equal to, if you put a line under, that's not this. He's not greater than or equal to. He is just greater. So the author is now making a case built on the fact that Jesus is greater than the angels because he's the son of God. That's how he starts out in the early verses, but even in in verse 5, to which of the angels did God ever say, you're my son? The answer is implied, none of them. He says this only to, to Jesus. Now, to be clear, it is interesting that in the scriptures, if we look at the whole of the scriptures, 
the angels are sometimes called sons of God. If you remember, some, I forget these things often, but in the beginning of Job, you know, when there's the discussion with the Lord and the heavenly council and they all come, it says the sons of God met with the Lord. Those are the angels then who's even Satan himself has come before. The sons of God come. And in fact, even in our call to worship, that very first verse of Psalm 23, when we say, ascribe to the Lord, you heavenly beings, that phrase heavenly beings literally in the Hebrew means you sons of God. When we're talking to the angels there, they're being referred to as sons of God. So when we refer to the angels as sons of God, this means then that the Lord God is their head. The Lord is their leader. In the same way that if someone's called in the scripture a son of the prophets, it doesn't mean that their dad was a prophet. Or, or grandpap, good old grandpappy, was, was prophet so-and-so. It's not necessary. It could mean that, but it doesn't necessarily mean that. It means they are in line with the prophets. So the angels are sometimes called sons of God in that sense, that they are in line behind the Lord. But Jesus is the Son of God in a different way. You can see it in verse 5. Today you're my, uh, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. Jesus is a begotten son. So as the begotten son, Jesus then is not created by the Father. He was never born into existence. He's eternal. He has always been. But Jesus is the son of God in the sense that he is the same type as the Father. He's got the Father's DNA, if I can say it that way. And Jesus is the only one who is like this, ever. That puts Jesus in a totally different category. It makes Jesus better or superior to everything else that is not God. So the author here, as he kind of unfolds this, is building a case He's making an argument then in the rest of these chapters with using all these Old Testament verses, which, by the way, uh, if you ever look up these verses, some Bibles have a little footnote of what verse he's referencing. And if you ever go back to the Old Testament and look it up and you go, this is different, they're using different words, it's because the author here is using uh, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, so don't let that bother you. That's why sometimes the wording is slightly different. But he's building a case off of all these Old Testament verses that Jesus, because he is the Son of God, is now, you can just look through the verses, he's now worshipped. He now holds the scepter of the kingdom. He laid the foundations of the earth. His years are unending, and he is the conqueror of all of his enemies. So when we ask what the author is saying, you get the point here. In everything, Christ, the Son of God, is better than the angels. Now, that brings us to the second question. So what is the author saying? Jesus is better than the angels. But second, why is the author saying this? 
Why is he talking about how Jesus is better than the angels? Why is he suddenly talking about angels here? Because in these first three verses, the ones we spent, you know, a month unfolding, it doesn't seem like he's headed in a direction that's going to, you know, talk about heavenly beings. Those first three verses talk about Jesus in what's called the threefold offices of the Old Testament. Maybe you've heard this before. Prophet, priest, and king. That's the threefold offices, the three major figures. And, and so he unfolds this. Jesus is now a, the better word of the prophets. Jesus is the better sacrifice of the priests. He's a better ruler than the kings. And that makes sense to head in that direction. Why then does the author suddenly launch into this extensive discussion that will slop into chapter 2 about uh, angels? Where a, a discussion that after chapter 2 he just completely leaves behind and doesn't talk about again. I have to admit that I don't 100% know the answer to that question. The author does not tell us why he says this, but... But I do have a strong guess of why he says this. Because if an author, this author, is making a case that Jesus is better, it makes sense that he would start by comparing him to the greatest things we know that he would start by looking at the greatest potential rivals. So if I were going to make a case about the, the greatest American novel, what I think is the greatest American novel, I know I'm a book nerd, and I would argue that that's The Great Gatsby. Okay? I'm not going to start by making a case that The Great Gatsby is the greatest by comparing that book to the Twilight series. Anyone like the Twilight series? Sorry if I'm insulting. I probably wouldn't start by comparing that book maybe to you know, John Grisham and Nicholas Sparks. Uh, as great as those guys might be, they tend to be popular and then fade. If I'm going to make a case that it's the greatest American novel, I'll probably start by comparing it to something like Moby Dick or, or, or uh, The Huckleberry Finn or, or To Kill a Mockingbird or one of those. And I'm trying to address then the strongest competition against it. Or if I were going to try to make a claim on the best candy of all time, I would not start by comparing it to licorice or candy corn. I'd start by, you know, something chocolatey something nougaty, uh, you know, and, and something, something time-tested that, that could really hold it. And, and I know, if you're going, man, I like candy corn, first of all, you're wrong. Uh, but if you're thinking that, if you think these things are debatable, well, you're right about that. It's debatable. I need to make a case, then, why X candy is better. And I need to try to make that reasonable, convincing, so that you, at the end, go, hmm, I can maybe see that. That's then exactly what the author is doing here. In verse after verse after verse, he's comparing Christ the Son to the angels to make a reasonable case. And we could see that the comparison against angels as a potential rival of greatness would be an excellent place to begin. We know that Paul 
because he talks about this in the book of Colossians, uh, there were some issues faced in certain areas that people were worshiping angels. And he warns against the danger of that. And I'm sure here that the author of Hebrews is aware of that particular danger. At the very end, uh, in chapter 13, he warns against what he calls strange teachings. We don't know what he means by that, but perhaps the worship of angels were wrapped up in this. So perhaps the people might be tempted to start to be, you know, a little curious about angels, which is fine. But then allow that curiosity about them to go a little too far. And that curiosity then turns into an unhealthy interest in the angels until we're preoccupied with them and, and slowly we start to push out the central things of the Bible, that they start to eclipse Jesus and we come to worship the angels without even realizing it. That might have been a danger for them. And if we have here a scriptural view, a biblical view of angels, you can see why a person might be tempted to worship them. I mean, in some ways, that doesn't quite make sense to us, that someone would worship angels, because we have been extremely heavily influenced by cultural understanding of angels. I mean, if you look at pictures or, or, or statues of angels, very often they are soft and sleepy, head tilted, maybe hands folded, looks uncomfortable to me, but as the, you know, the willow tree figures often are, if you're familiar with those. Or, or maybe we get the understanding that the angels are more like a personal guide, uh, sort of this like tag-along helper, sort of like Clarence in It's a Wonderful Life, that they're there kind of as a golden retriever who kind of skips alongside. Or we sometimes get in our heads this picture of angels as naked, cute, chubby, flying babies. Especially around Valentine's Day, because Cupid's that way, yes? At least in the pictures of it. Or the, some of the dreamsicle figures have angels that are these cute, chubby babies. We know cherubim, cherubs, cherubim in the Bible are real creatures part of the angels, but they are the furthest thing from babies. Now, if you have some of these pictures or figurines in your home, it's fine, okay? If, you, if I go into your house, don't, you know, panic, oh no, I've got one of those in the corner. Quick, sweep it into the side so Nathan doesn't see it. That's not the goal. You don't necessarily need to get rid of it, but you do need to know that if you've got angels in these form in some way, you need to know that those creatures are imaginary, entirely fictional. Real angels, according to the Bible, are very, very different creatures. It's not often that God pulls back the curtain of the heavens to give us a glimpse of the spiritual beings, various angels. These things are often invisible to us. But in the few times that he allows us to see them, they are striking. I know usually we see them around Christmas time, but there are other uh, references. I want to read several of these passages 
just very quickly here together. Uh, you don't have to turn here. These are printed in your bulletin if you're curious to look at them later. But as I read several of these just back to back without comment, so we can hear some of the context of these creatures, the angels and their various types, I want you to imagine what these look like or what these would be like. So this is Isaiah in chapter 6. I'll go through a number of various chapters here. Isaiah 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. One called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. Ezekiel, in chapter 1, beginning in verse 4. As I looked, behold, a stormy wind came out of the north and a great cloud with brightness around it. And fire flashed forth continually and in the midst of the fire as it were gleaming metal. And from the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures. This was their appearance. They had a human likeness, but each had four faces and each of them had four wings. Their legs were straight, and the soles of their feet were like the sole of a calf's foot. And they sparkled like burnished bronze. Under their wings, on the four sides, they had human hands. And the four had their faces and their wings like this. Their wings touched one another. Each one of them went straight forward without turning as they went. As for the likeness of their faces, each had a human face. The four had the face of a lion on the right side. The four had the face of an ox on the left side. And the four had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces, and their wings were spread out above. Their appearance was like burning coals of fire, like the appearance of torches moving to and fro among the living creatures. And the fire was bright. And out of the fire went forth lightning, and the living creatures darted to and fro like the appearance of a flash of lightning. Zechariah chapter 1, verse 8. I saw in the night, and behold, a man was riding on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen, and behind him were red, sorrel, and white horses. And I said, Who are these, my Lord? The angel who talked with me said, I'll show you who they are. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, These are the ones whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees, and they said, We have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth remains at rest. Last one. Revelation chapter 10, verse 1. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud, 
with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs were like pillars of fire. And he had a little scroll open in his hand. He set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and he called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. And when he called out, the seven thunders sounded. If we understood angels the way they are shown to us in the scriptures, we would never look at a sleeping infant and say, my little angel. The word angelic, if used biblically, ought to mean something closer to intense, powerful, flashing, thunderous, glorious. Angels are the most powerful created beings in the entire universe. But the angels are servants of Jesus, ministering spirits who do his will. Jesus is better. The angels don't even come close. If it were a hundred meter dash between Jesus and the angels. We'd hear the gun, he would finish, and then we would have time to go get a sandwich, a little lunch, a little salami with pickles, and come back, and they still would not be done. There is that much of a gap between them. Christ, the Son of God, is immensely greater in power, in authority, and in glory. We know that in his time on earth, Jesus was made man. So he put on flesh, became truly human. And so for a while during that time, he became a little lower than the angels. The author will tell us later. So Jesus in that time traded his glory for the form of a servant. He submitted himself to death, even death on a cross. But once that was done, he has now resumed his throne. He is at the right hand of the Father with a name that is far more excellent than all of creation. Now, that brings us then to this final question. We've said... Uh, the author talks about what this is comparing Jesus to angels. Why does he do it? Because the angels are probably the, mo the most comparable thing to Jesus. But now, third question, how do we engage with something like this? And that's a tricky question to answer. In fact, I've wrestled with this question more than I often wrestle uh, with things in preparing for a sermon. Because... The writer of, of Hebrews is addressing the angels as one of the greatest rivals or supposed rivals to the excellency of Jesus. But we don't tend to think about angels that way. In fact, we, we tend not to give much thought to angels at all unless there may be a little like statue on our dashboard or maybe around Christmas. 
but we don't even tend to give them a thought. So then I wonder if the writer were trying to present a rival to compare Jesus to to us, what would we see as the highest thing to have to compare him to? Some have suggested, you know, possible rivals for the glory of Jesus, mentioning things like, you know, celebrities and athletes or musicians, people with money and influence and power and fame and all of that. And I suppose there's something to that. Those sorts of things can become idols for us. Uh, John Calvin said, our hearts are perpetual idol factories. We love to make things that take the place of God. This is deep sin. That's why we need Jesus to cleanse us, to renew us, to change us. So we should give those things serious attention, I suppose. And yet, something about that just seems to pale in comparison. You know, celebs and athletes and all these people, they don't seem to be rivals of Jesus in quite the same way that the angels might have been. They don't stir in us the same sort of wonder, awe, excellency, even fear that the angels might have done, the sort of excellence of their otherworldliness. So what do we have in their place? And I think for us, there is just nothing. There's nothing quite in that place in our culture. It's as if we have grown numb or immune to excellence of this sort altogether. And I think the reason for this is because we are currently facing an excess of excellence, at least as far as we see it. We see these sorts of things coming at us, especially through our screens every day, things that are designed specifically to captivate us, to enthrall us, to wow us. So music concerts that used to be someone playing their instrument up on a stage are now these giant technical productions that will take your breath away. Or sporting events are now so full of hype and replays and hours of commentary on either end. And talent shows and TV shows full of these things. We're now seeing truly amazing things that people can see that we never would have had contact with 100 years ago, at least on that frequency. And movies, goodness, computers, and CGI has made virtually nothing impossible. I mean, just think about the Star Wars movies. Remember those originals where we first met Yoda, who was a puppet? And a complex puppet with lots of people that make him work. And I love Yoda from the first movies, but when you watch the later movies, boy, Yoda, there's nothing he can't do. He's flipping and twisting and turning and fighting with lightsabers because he's made out of pixels on a computer. The level of excellence that we are experiencing is so excessive. It is so amped up to the highest possible notch that it has become virtually impossible to maintain it. 
And so we've grown numb to it. It's like a drug for us, like an addiction that we need a little bit more of the hit to get the same sort of high. And we see this even in churches. There's risk and temptation for us even now. Watch churches in their musical approach chasing an emotional high for people. Or sermons that are now often accompanied with with videos and cute jokes just to keep the people listening. Or, and the whole service usually is being shortened and shortened and trimmed everywhere just because it's too long and we're going to lose people. This excess of excellence is backfiring because it cannot sustain its own weight. We've almost reached the point where if we saw the Lord Almighty riding on the wings of the cherubim as he's depicted in Psalm 18, if we saw that ourselves, we might maybe snap a photo and go, cool, but move on. And this should frighten us that we would grow numb to the glory of God What does this mean then for us? How do we engage with this? It doesn't mean that we need to get rid of all these things. Even if we could, we can't. (laughs) Nor does it mean that we necessarily have to run away or bury our head in the sand against all these things. The author of Hebrews, in comparing to angels, is not demeaning or dispensing of the angels. He talks about them in their fullness. But we need to know, you need to know, that when we compare anything to Jesus, music, CGI, or angels, that is never bringing Jesus down to their level. We are saying, when we say Jesus is better, that Jesus is so much better that there is virtually no comparison. So if you've grown bored, numb, maybe burned out by the cultural experience, the excess of what we call excellence, by the grace and power of God, tell yourself what is true about Jesus and hold on to it. You need to tell yourself that Jesus is better. And he is so much better. His name is so far excellent that nothing, nothing can compare to him. Hold on to that. Would you pray with me? Lord, even as we pray, we recognize that we don't pray to other humans. We don't even pray to the angels 
or other powers, we pray to you because you are the only power able to do this work in us. Help us to recognize and to love, crave even your excellence and that we would come to worship your majesty far above all things. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.